All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome back to Your Brain on Science. We hope you've been enjoying our content this season and are hanging in there with all the craziness of the world. Uh, You have both me and Zarmin here today. Um, Before we get started, Zarmin, I need to ask you a very important question. Yes. Are you seeing the Barbie movie? Absolutely. I'm seeing the Barbie movie. The Barbie movie is becoming my personality for the next foreseeable future. Um, I'm actually seeing Oppenheimer tonight which I wanted to see Barbie first, but my girlfriend's come back next week. So I have to just hold on and wait until next weekend to see Barbie, but I will be seeing Oppenheimer tonight. So exciting. Are you not a Barbie movie? (laughs) I, so I'm not a big movie person. Normally I don't know when the last time I actually went to like the movies to see something new. I've gone to like the theater that like shows like Halloween movies. Uh, (laughs) Like I've seen like screaming theaters 20 years later. Um, but I am seeing the Barbie movie. I'm hopefully seeing it tomorrow. Woohoo! Well, I'm so freaking excited for it, honestly. Yes, I'm hype. I've heard it's, um, heard great reviews so far, so I'm, I'm pumped. <laughs> okay, now that the important business is out of the way, and I really hope that, you know, everyone goes to see the Barbie movie because we are Barbie stands. Uh, today we're going to talk about a new publication, really exciting, uh, titled Comparing Neural Correlates of Consciousness. From Psychedelics to Hypnosis and Meditation by the Preller Group over in the University of Zurich. Now, this paper is done by some really heavy hitters, right? The author list is really, really awesome. We got Franz Vollenweider. We have Katrin Preller. Um, they happen to publish a lot of work in psychedelics. But this paper is also really important for another reason, because it comes at a very important time. Because it's doing some very valuable comparisons between the drugs themselves, right? The psychedelics themselves and other forms of intervention, that are inducing altered states of consciousness. Now, this is something that as a field, we have been contemplating and thinking about since the beginning and sort of postulating the relationship between um, different methods of inducing altered states of consciousness for quite some time. And actually, in one of our previous episodes, you may have heard one of us talk about the fact that although psychedelics are very useful as psychotherapy adjuncts, right? That's what we talk about. We talk about all of those clinical trials, and people are, uh, you know, experiencing so much therapeutic benefit, so on and so forth. And that's sort of what brought psychedelics to the forefront. In many subfields, such as my own, um, their utility really lies in their use as agents of inducing altered states of consciousness. So psychedelics can be used as a tool to study consciousness and disorders of consciousness, um, rather than you know, just the drugs themselves and them having an effect on psychopathology and and different sort of aspects of uh, psychiatry, I guess. And that's actually how my lab came to them. We're an anesthesia lab that studied consciousness and that's how psychedelics uh, were salient to us. So very exciting that this paper is out personally for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just really cool because it speaks to the diversity and the potential application of psychedelics, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned. And it highlights their importance as powerful pharmacological agents 
And as, you know, like you mentioned, like these tools to like mm. pick and product consciousness and um, to really get at understanding that. And there's, you know, this group that's doing that, your lab was uh, using them like that. And there's also, you know, the group at University of Michigan that just had that paper with um, like nitrous and LSD and ketamine. Yeah. And like, so we're really, um, I think it's important to remember that not everything has to be therapeutic value. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of studies with psychedelics that are still really interesting and really useful um, just as a basic science perspective or as a study of like the human conscious condition. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's get into the paper itself. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about all that at the end. So the goal of this work was to understand the similarities and the differences between two psychedelics. So we have LSD and we have psilocybin. Also, non-pharmacological mechanisms of altered states of consciousness, meditation, and hypnosis. And so all of these things induce this ASC. And it's been interestingly extensively reported that meditation and hypnosis can induce this state somewhat similarly to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, many people practice meditation on a daily basis and report increased quality of life, oneness, increased spirituality, and relaxation. Um, So that sounds pretty similar to the mystical experience questionnaire categories, right, Sarmeen? Yeah, it totally does. You know, it's something, it's so funny, I just thought of this. Um, So things like meditation um, and obviously hypnosis that they're talking about here, um, you can, it could be achieved by a lot of things, right? Not just like sitting there and following a, a specific uh, sort of, oh, what is it? Like a meditation, sort of a guided meditation or, or mm-hmm. whatever. There's something here in Madison called Float Madison where they kind of put you in a sensory deprivation cage. Um, and sensory deprivation, you sit, you sit there and it's very internally focused, like you have nothing else sort of going on. And it's, I think, considered a form of meditation, but people report having crazy you know like psychedelic adjacent hallucinogenic experiences on stuff like 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 this right I think it's so so cool and I just thought of that and I I wonder if any of our followers have done something like sensory deprivation to reach an altered states of state of consciousness and if you have like let us know how that was I'm so intrigued and interested yeah for sure if you have these anecdotal evidences, please let us know. But from this paper, from a data standpoint, is there really a difference in brain connectivity in consciousness itself following these different interventions, right? Um, so they assess these similarities and these differences by looking at resting state, functional MRI, and responses on scales measuring these altered states of consciousness. Yeah. So the way that these authors do this is that they analyze data from studies that already exist out there, right? So it's important to note here that they gathered this data from three separate studies um, and then obviously analyze these existing data sets. So there are going to be differences in the scales that were used in the different studies, um, but they use multiple analyses to try and get at some potential differences uh, and do quality control, which we'll talk about in a moment here. Um, and of these different studies that they assessed, uh, let's tra- let's sort of go through them. Uh, there was one which looked at the functional effects of LSD and psilocybin. So these are going to be our pharmacological interventions. Um, one which looked at the effects of meditation and one which assessed the effects of hypnosis, right? So these are our two non-pharmacological interventions. Um, all of the studies use data uh, from resting state functional MRI. And this just means that the measurements were not associated with any discrete or 
discrete task or any burden. Um, rather, these individuals were just given their intervention, right? Be that the psychedelics, uh, engaging in meditation, or they were hypnotized, whatever it was. Um, and then they were placed in the MRI and recorded from sort of spontaneously. And the way that uh, fMRI analysis is done uh, before starting the a study, usually before starting the study, right, regions of interest are identified. We will call them ROIs from here on out. It's just easier to say. Um, and using some very cool math that I won't talk about today, um, you can calculate many different things uh, between these different ROIs, about these different ROIs. So say I pick an ROI, right? And it's the visual cortex, so V1. V1 is the area responsible for processing visual input, right? This is where visual input goes to first in the brain. Um, and then I pick another ROI. Say it's the motor cortex, which is the area involved in processing and carrying out motor movement. Now, I want to see if after an intervention, these areas talk to each other differently, uh, assessing connectivity between these ROIs, right? And you can calculate uh, something about that between these ROIs. Um, and further, um, I want to know if these areas are activated or deactivated similarly, if they are showing patterns of activation or deactivation that are similar to each other. Um, and here is where we can ca uh, calculate a coefficient of correlation. Um, so there's a lot that you can assess with these ROIs, but these are the basics. And this is sort of what the authors looked at uh, in these data sets. Yes. And I promise we will get to the results, but we just want to do it's a lot to understand, you know, these papers with um, the, the brain imaging. And so, especially when you're taking and combining like three different studies. So we just want to make sure, um, you know, the whole point of our journal club is to break down stuff that would be extremely complicated for the layperson to read. So we're going to take our time to do that. Um, but I want to give you guys a quick breakdown of who was in the study. And then some of, and then means Armin are both going to give you some more statistical details because, you know, these Barbies love stats. <laughs> and like Zarmin mentioned, uh, the paper is analyzing the three separate studies, and we're going to link in the show notes and on the blog. Zarmin's going to make a beautiful table summarizing this paper. Um, but each intervention had similar sample sizes. So the psilocybin group had 23 people, the LSD group, 25 people, meditation group, 29 people, and the hypnosis group had 30 people. Um, and so the final count of participants was about 107, and 51 of those were female, 56 were male. So really great, um, you know, sex, gender um, yeah. split. Um, these folks were all Caucasian. Um, not so great. <laughs> not so great, but unsurprising. And I've kind of come like a circle, circular way about criticizing this because I think that a lot of us want to be like, oh, we need more diverse samples, which is absolutely true. But we don't think about how medicine has wronged people and why they might not want to participate in studies or like where these studies are being funded versus where they're not being funded. So I think like my criticisms of like the review or the researchers themselves has kind of gone down and I'm more now critiquing this the entire system. <laughs> Girl, we have been critiquing the entire system since day one. <laughs> I think our listeners know that. <laughs> I just feel like a lot of times we like are like yelling at the authors, though. No, like, no, we're no, not no. trying to. We're just mad. Total, yeah, this is a systematic failing, right? Like, there's so many, and we will also have an episode on this in the future, like in the yeah. very near future. Um, but yeah, it's like totally, totally systematic failings that authors can do their part in helping fix but you know it's you can't you're not going to be able to solve the problem by yourself discreetly 
Um, but yeah, it's going to involve a lot more. So yeah. Side note, side tangent. <laughs> um, so the authors note that um, while they had a good like gender split overall, the groups differed in age and gender and they um, made sure that they used each person's intervention and control data um, as the input for their analysis because they didn't want to confound the data by assuming that these individuals were matched across the studies. And we're kind of going to get into that when they do their individual analysis. Yeah. So, okay. So let's get a little bit more into the weeds. So I mentioned ROIs a moment ago, right? So in this paper, there were 132 ROIs across the different studies. Um, so what they did is that they collapsed these 132 ROIs into 22 distinct networks, right? So say V1 and V2 are uh, different, two distinct ROIs that were identified. In the distinct, in the networks, they would sort of put this into the visual network. Um, and same thing with various different uh, ROIs. They condensed everything into 22 distinct networks, and that makes it easier to look across studies. Um, so they measured connectivity between these ROIs for all of the experimental groups and controls. Um, and then they analyzed this with two by two analysis of variance. And then to investigate the changes induced by each intervention individually, uh, they compared each condition to its respective control. And this allows them to look at the different interventions and compare them to their own controls and across treatment groups and do this, uh, you know, successfully and uh, statistically in a way that is robust and well matched. <laughs> you sound thrilled about it. <laughs> no, I really am. <laughs> it's just this really hard sentence to get through. You guys don't get to hear all these bloopers, but listen, <laughs> all these words are hard today. Yes. Uh, so then they move on to, you know, quality control. Um, they make sure that there's no correlations between the hypo or hyper connectivity differences, uh, differences in motion. So this can happen through displacement of fMRI frames if people are moving around in there or like the scanner's off um, or sleepiness. So they correct for sleepiness because if you're sleepy, your brain's not going to be firing off, uh, which I thought that was kind of cute. Um, so they also use a machine learning algorithm, which I will not get into in depth um, <laughs> at all. But um, we, we're trying to read through this and just break it down as simple as possible. So this is what we have for you. Yeah, there will be more in the blog post. We will get a little <laughs> bit more in the weeds in the blog post. So feel free to read that if you want more. Yeah. Um, so they basically sort and assess the different interventions at the, sub the individual subject level. And they report total accuracy, which is the number of correctly classified samples over the overall number of test samples. Uh, they have a balanced accuracy, so considering the number of samples in each classification and then weighting them equally. Um, and then they do a class accuracy, so um, looking at models for some of the classifications. And then they look at area under the curve, which provides basically um, a scale for invariant measure of performance. And so all of this to say that they absolutely did their best to try to analyze this data with proper comparisons and controls without blending all of the data into one big data set and actually taking the time to sort it properly and to make sure um, that they're getting most of the kinks out, right? Yeah, which they absolutely had to do, right? Because this is huge and it's across so many different studies and um, you have to be smart about that. But, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. So now let's get into the results after all of that. What did they actually find? 
So they tested many hypotheses here. So we're going to break this down by hypothesis, right? And we'll start, um, we're go, we'll go from macro to sort of uh, micro level. So first, they tested the hypothesis that these four interventions will induce differential changes in resting state activity across the 22 networks that they looked at. Um, and what do they find? Indeed, they find that all of four of these interventions, pharmacological, um, LSD, psilocybin, um, and non-pharmacological meditation and hypnosis, all induce changes in that resting state functional uh, MRI. And this is not all that surprising to us because this is a result that has been established in other studies, right? Um, but further, they found that these changes were all distinct based on the intervention. Uh, so LSD and psilocybin and meditation and hypnosis induced changes that were all different from each other. Mm -hmm. Very important. I think, too, an important note is that they uh, talk about this a little bit. They say that, you know, while these changes are distinctly happening with these interventions, no networks in the brain themselves reached a significant, like, change, I guess, mm -hmm. um, in all four methods. So while they are distinct from each other, there was nothing that was like, boom, like crazy significantly altered in the way that they were analyzing this. Yeah, yeah. So the data showed that with the drugs, right, with the psilocybin and LSD, that there was decreased connectivity in both the between and within analyses that they did. Um, so they showed decreases in the default mode network connectivity, which is, you know, has been previously reported and something we have sort of beaten to death. Um, <laughs> and they also, they also found increased connectivity in visual and associative networks like the dorsal attention network, um, which is going to tell, you know, which is sort of harkens to the hallucinations and the alterations in uh, perception and sort of what is becoming salient to you at the time, what is not becoming salient to you. Um, and they also found decreased connectivity between V1 and somato, uh, somatomotor regions, which V1 visual somatomotor is going to have to do with um, your motor movements and something about your body, your space in the world, right? So this is going to be hallucinations and sensory changes. So now they wanted to test if these changes that we just talked about could be predictive of the intervention that was applied at the individual level, right? So let's let's flip the association. Let's see if we can predict what was given based on the patterns, not the patterns, excuse me, based on the changes that we're seeing in the resting state fMRI. Um, so to do this, they trained that model that, that um, we talked about earlier using all these data and they split it up into pharmacological and non-pharmacological, non right? So they just kind of looked at two groups. They condensed the LSD and psilocybin and meditation and hypnosis. And they found that the model could predict with really great accuracy, 85, about 85% total accuracy, uh, whether um, it was a pharmacological or a non-pharmacological intervention based on the changes that uh, the model was seeing which is very cool. <laughs> yeah, super cool. Um, a lot of work. It's like a lot of it's over my head. <laughs> but I think it's very fascinating. And um, the way that they break all of this up and doing both the individual and the like between and within is really awesome. Mm -hmm. um, so from here, now they want to compare all the groups amongst each other. So 
As expected, they find that there was no significant differences in the MRI data between the LC and psilocybin. Uh, this kind of goes along with a recent study that came out where they uh, gave LC and psilocybin to people and told them to kind of try to guess which one that they got, um, and they couldn't discern the difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, something interesting to think about there. Um, when they compare LSD and psilocybin to hypnosis, they find that both the pharmacological interventions um, cause an increase in connectivity between areas involved in sensory and associative networks and decrease connectivity between areas involved in sensory networks alone. So moving from the comparison of LSD and psilocybin to hypnosis to now comparing them with meditation, uh, the study revealed a decrease in connectivity in visual brain area V1 for the meditation group uh, compared to the LC and psilocybin group. And what's interesting, if you think about um, the difference between comparing the pharmacological to either hypnosis or meditation, um, meditation has a more visual aspect to it, which I think I'm gonna talk about a little bit later because I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, now, finally, uh, when we compare hypnosis and meditation to each other, they find that hypnosis resulted in decreased connectivity in V1 compared to meditation. So that's really interesting that like, if you move down the line, right, you, you get these comparisons when you look um, at a more specific level than if you're just looking overall. Mm -hmm. So they next wanted to see if these interventions had different patterns of activity and they hypothesized that hypnosis and meditation would, but LC and psilocybin would not have different patterns between each other. And indeed, they find that when trained, the model could not differentiate between LSD and psilocybin, but it could distinguish between hypnosis and meditation with about 66% accuracy. Um, and this could be due to the mechanistic overlap between LSD and psilocybin. Um, they act through the same receptors, further um, psychedelic effects, and the mechanistic dissimilarity between meditation and hypnosis. Um, so finally, they want to test the relationship between the altered states of consciousness, induced changes in the fMRI, and behavior. So um, one thing to note here, they only do this for the psilocybin LC and meditation. They cannot um, do it for the, the hypnosis because the behavioral data just wasn't there. So what they do, though, for the other groups is they use the ASC scores and the MRI data, and they were able to basically regress these altered states of consciousness changes in behavior onto changes in the functional uh, MRI. And they found that experience of unity and insightfulness resulted in significant clusters um, in psilocybin-treated people, while um, elementary imagery was significant for LSD. And interestingly, the meditation depth questionnaire, so that's um, basically the questionnaire they use for the altered states of consciousness in meditation, found that uh, essential quality was borderline significant in this condition. And so, uh, so these data suggest that perhaps there are specifics of the experience that are linked to brain activity, um, although further research is necessary to get at this phenomenon. But I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was a lot, but there is a lot in there that you could probably break down because, again, these are huge data sets, right? And all of these scales are looking at subsets of the altered states of consciousness experience. So there's a lot to look at here. Um, and just to remind everyone, the main goal of this paper was to understand if different altered states of consciousness 
induce similar changes in resting state functional MRI, um, as well as whether or not these changes can be correlated to specific altered states of consciousness phenomenon as measured through those scales. Um, and again, the main finding here is that pharmacological and non-pharmacological induced pharma, excuse me. And the main finding here is that pharmacologically and non-pharmacologically induced altered states of consciousness actually show distinct connectivity patterns that are predictive at the individual level. And this suggests that while these methods all induce altered states of consciousness, right, that is well established, um, and they all do it in a specific manner in an, in an individual, they do it in a way that's different from each other. And they do it in a way in which you can predict the intervention from the changes that you see induced in the resting state functional connectivity. Um, they also show that hypnosis and meditation show differences from each other when they're compared directly, um, but also drive the distinction between non-pharmacological and pharmacological interventions, which I think that difference was probably a little bit more expected, right? Like we all at some level logically or, you know, uh, I guess what's the word here? Um, anecdotally can understand that taking psychedelics is going to be different from sitting down and meditating for uh, an hour or, or more or less or more, whatever, um, or being hypnotized, right? They, it seems very distinct to us, but we have actually never seen that in the data. So though things might logically seem right to us, we didn't have the data to back it up, but this paper provides the basis for us to actually be able to say that, which is, I think, really, really awesome. And also, Interestingly, the psilocybin and the LSD analysis revealed no differences in functional connectivity when compared to each other, um, although they do have distinct differences in subjective altered states of consciousness phenomenon. Um, and this is also another thing that I think the field has been trying to pin down, right? All of those differences at the functional, the cellular, the molecular level um, between these different psychedelics and I don't know that we found anything really, really concrete uh, yet in within the same class, right, for the classical uh, psychedelics versus each other. Um, but I think really, really interesting. Um, so I think overall, this was a really great study using large data sets to compare across various interventions. Um, and while I think that this is a strength, right, I think this is awesome that they're able to pull these data where the functional data is similar enough that they could do these analyses, right? This can also be a weakness because there are some methodological differences that, okay, because there are some methodological differences that just cannot be reconciled because there were distinct studies um, that were headed by different people that were conducted by different individuals. Um, and we clearly see that in one of their analysis, they were actually unable to include um, one of the groups, the hypnosis group, because they just didn't do that part of, um, you know, the, the study in that study. Um, so I think despite that, um, remembering that that is a limitation, right, despite this, I think these are some robust results. And a big part of that is because we do actually know something about the effects of the pharmacological treatments on functional connectivity um, now, as is before this paper. Uh, so they could serve maybe as a positive control for us, which I think is really, really important to have um, when you're sort of venturing off into the world and looking at really cool new stuff. <laughs> um, I, I personally think that the behavioral data could have been stronger for the two studies that we did look at, um, but I don't really have any major criticisms of this paper uh, as it stands, right? Because they do also themselves address these limitations or are very cognizant of what could, could have been better, which is 
is very, very nice to see. Um, so I think this is a very great first stab at looking at psychedelics as a tool um, rather than, you know, just a treatment and being able to compare across all of these uh, altered states of consciousness inducing modalities. So I think very, very cool. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me, like one thing that always gets glossed over with psychedelic research is like just the basic studies. Like everyone wants to jump to like, oh, the treatment with psychedelics, like there's going to be a treatment. Like Like, groundbreaking. How do we do that? Like we need to have, yeah, like these groundbreaking crazy studies, but it's like, we still don't know so much. And I, I talked about that last week with, um, with Abigail and it's just like so interesting like that there's just so much work to be done but no one wants to do the quote unquote boring you know studies but they're obviously not boring like the study rules and i think it really points out that it might be beneficial to further look at altered states of consciousness as a whole and these different um subjective effects and that's been done by like some groups you know but I'd like to see it done, you know, some more, some more in depth, like some better design when we're doing in these individual studies. Cause I think that this um, like grouping together, this like meta analysis of these studies shows the gaps, you know, the, the gaps in reproducibility by not using the, the methods, the similar methods across. Um, and then another thing that I thought was really cool about this paper is that, for example, using like the data with the visual system, right? Like, obviously, we know psychedelics induce hallucinations. That's like the major part of it. Um, it has to do with the visual system. But this paper shows distinct neural connectivity of the visual systems in psychedelics and in things like meditation and hypnosis, which, like you mentioned earlier, we think a lot about like these things like, oh, it's common sense, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Well, we can separate them, but we can. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And like, obviously people meditate sometimes with their eyes closed, you know, told to have a certain form of awareness, depending on the meditation, hypnosis, highly reliant on visual systems usually, or memory or things like that. So seeing these brain regions like the V1 and V2, having these changes in connectivity with these associative cortices across the board here is super interesting. It's not just psychedelics and hallucinations, you know, it's, it's, a lot of overlap in the ASCs here. So something that I just thought was like really cool about this paper. Yeah. So overall, really great. Um, And I think we'll say the same thing that we say every time. We need more. Give me more. I'm not satisfied. I want more. More, 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 more. Um, But thank you guys so much for listening to this uh, Journal Club episode. Uh, we have a lot more coming at you. It's been a really rough time for me, I will say, as you know, a late stage PhD, things are <laughs> ramping up. Um, but thank you so much for suffering through um, some of the difficulties that uh, we have had. Um, but we really appreciate you guys. And you know, there is only more coming and only bigger and better things. Um, and things are going to get exciting. So I hope you guys are having a good summer so far. Go see the Barbie movie if you haven't yet, please. Um, Don't tell me about it. Don't give me any spoilers. But come back next week for another episode. Um, Please subscribe. Go visit the blog if you want more information. Go watch our YouTube videos. um, And we will see you guys next time. Bye, guys. Bye.